Hey, Maka. Hey, Strady. Hey, Nugget. Hey, mate. We are back for episode number 42 of Sports and Spit, and today we have a very special guest, former NBL player, former Australian boomer, Newcastle sporting legend, and all-round nice guy, Ben Melmoth. Welcome to the show, Ben. Good morning, everyone. It's a uh, pleasure to have you on today. Pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, one of the first day podcasts we've done, which is great. Yeah, this morning business, it's killing me. It's killing me. But uh, yeah, welcome, Benny. And uh, I could do my best micro big voice right now with Big Benny Melbourne. But uh, yeah, there's more like Rabs. But anyway. I saw Rabs the other day at the shops and maybe hasn't changed a bit. Did he, did he scream across the across the car park? Oh, well, station. it's probably the, the randomest hug I've given pre-COVID <laughs> since ah. it all went down. <laughs> Was he was he giving a running commentary on the on the on the shop process? Was he like obviously well, you know? We're at Beggar's Delight, so uh, there was a bit of commentary on the loaves. Yeah, nice, <laughs> yeah, nice, good. Ben, so, just the very first question I wanted to ask you, mate: How does it feel to be the second best Ben to come out of Newcastle basketball? Oh, happy to be second best uh, Ben when it comes to you know Mr. Simmons. Um, yeah, no, I couldn't be prouder of him. It's funny looking back. He was a ball boy. He couldn't wait to go in rather than wiping the floors. He was shooting hoops in between quarters when we were playing. And, uh, and here he is now just doing his thing. It's just, yeah, it's so good to see. Yeah, that's cool. Well, probably world's worst ball boy, but probably did himself a favour by shooting hoops rather than cleaning floors, right? Good thing he's a good basketball player. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. So, Ben, uh, I guess the purpose of having you on the show this morning is to just um, discuss your career, your timeline as a basketballer from a, from an early age all the way through to your sort of uh, domestic and international career. And then um, sort of post-career, what you've done sort of, you know, outside the game. Um, and obviously a lot of those cool stories in between because uh, we're all about the stories here at Sports and Spit. Yeah, I love it. Love it. And uh, yeah, so, so kick us off, Benny. So uh, you're in high school at Katara High. And um, yeah, at 16, you get the uh, opportunity to move over to California. Yeah, look, it was it was funny how it worked out. Um, I, I when I, I guess the big big thing that kicked me off with my career was when I made the um, Hunter Academy of Sport. Um, that was something for me that it blew my mind when I made that team. Um, I was playing against guys that were much better than I was. I mean, obviously, I was tall and I could move and that kind of thing, but. But I was nowhere near as good as the other guys, um, well, I felt. But I made the team. And that just gave me, I think, a real boost of encouragement. Um, here I was in this you know, academy of sport that was really brand new to Newcastle, the, the, the Hunter Academy sport back then. Was that, and, sorry? Was that big Kenny Clifford? Yeah, the, the, what a legend he was, speaking of, uh, of wonderful people in Newcastle with sport. Um, yeah. but, um, he did a lot, didn't he? So much. Um, and Ken talked about respect on the court as a referee, too. Mm. Um, he was somebody you just did not want to, uh, you know, sort of like um, Mr. Gallagher as well. He, when he was refereed, um, you know, you didn't want to sort of upset them because they were like the father figures on the court. You were just this young up, up and comer. But these days, you know, kids would just talk back at anything. Yeah. Yeah. So Ben, you grew up in a family with three other brothers, um, and so what was it like the backyard battles? Did you sort of get a lot of your sort of uh, schooling, so to speak, in the early days from uh, battling your brothers yeah. in the driveway? 
Yeah, gosh, that competitiveness definitely came. Um, you know, the, the old adage was, you know, no blood, no foul. Um, and then when you're playing on concrete and you've got sort of wooden slats behind the backboard and you jump, you can nick yourself in all kinds of ways. And and there was a garage, a roller door garage behind the backboard. So if you sort of went for a lap and you were just collected by half the team, half the boys <laughs> into the garage and there's this dent of a man, you know, into the garage and mum would get pretty upset with that. I've played against your eldest brother, Simon, and he's very partial to a hard foul. So, um, yeah, I can, under, I can only imagine the sort of stuff you guys went through as a youngster. Uh, and then there's Adam, who's very partial to taking the hard fouls. And um, yes. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a good group. Was there... More fighting sometimes than actual gameplay. Um, well, the fight, absolutely, but the fighting generally had nothing to do with basketball. <laughs> uh, ben, I think that, that was the one area we sort of all came together and we agreed on something for five minutes. Basketball was the driving passion for you guys, obviously, wasn't it? Because you all played in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, well, look, when I was when I was in primary school, I wanted to play cricket. I collected all the cards, and I was a mad cricket person. And I was. You know, convinced I was going to be this wonderful bowler and that kind of thing, and then um, I think it was, I think it was Trevor Gallagher um, or someone in in school. Um, no, not wouldn't have been Trevor, but someone when I was really young and probably in third grade said, "Why don't you come on Saturday and play basketball? You're tall, you'd be good at it." Mm-hmm. So okay, I went along, and um, and Simon was playing at that point, but he was playing cricket as well, and uh, and I played. I think I scored ten points, twelve points, and it, it all came so easy to me, and we won, and and I had a great time, and that was it for me. I had the bug. Just um, went it. Ben, when it comes to cricket, who is the best cricketer in your family? Dad. Yep. Yep. Dad was, you know, he, he had the stories every time he'd come home after, after a match to tell us how he hit it over the six and put it through someone's windscreen. Or, you know, he, he always had these wonderful stories about, uh, you know, what a great game he had. And I was just like, you know, eating off every word. And was Did he, he played for Katara Cricket Club for years? Is that where he played? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And before yeah. you boys sort of got into basketball, was basketball a thing that your dad was interested in, or it was just no, kind of just, it was a generational thing of, of that time growing up in the it, it sort of was, late eighties, early nineties? Yeah, it was what it was. Um, it was funny actually. Whenever it was time to buy us equipment for basketball, we were just getting oh yeah, just put that on or put that on. But whenever it was like oh yeah, but if you play soccer, here's this nice soccer shoe. Or yeah, dad was really trying to push us towards you know those <laughs> sorts of things. But basketball, it was just yeah, our oh, thumbs will do. Is it um, is it true that your second youngest brother uh, Adam, so he would be the third of, of all the Melmoths in, in Youngster, is um, he he lays claim as being the shortest male Melmoth in history? Is that actually true? At six foot two, um, yeah, probably. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm, if you go back a couple of generations, you probably find much shorter. But um, uh, but in recent years, probably true. Yeah. Yeah, okay. He loves to have that chip on his shoulder, but so uh, you can't give him that, mate. So, <laughs> the the competitiveness Adam, can't stop. Thing about Adam is that he had the biggest heart and the biggest desire to be great. And for someone that was given probably the least amount of talent in our family to play mm-hmm. the game, he made an absolute amazing career of himself in the sport. Um, Certainly so, did. So much so that he's he's a lifetime member of um, of Newcastle Association. So I mean, we just couldn't be prouder of of sort of what he brings to the game and and what he brings to his teammates as well. I mean, he's the kind of player that you know we can all talk about. You know, especially me through my career with so many guys, so many teams. But you know, Adam's the kind of guy you want on any team, whether it's basketball mm-hmm. or cricket. You know, someone who's willing to do anything to make everyone else better and to win. Nice. Agreed. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know about the cricket, though, mate. I've, I've been in back with him and, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, 
He's motto of hit out or get out. <laughs> I gotta say, about I how bad a bowler he is. He's <laughs> the worst bowler I've ever seen in my life. I didn't want to go <laughs> there. Shit but, out. I didn't want to go there, but uh, Macca's definitely onto something there. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but to get back to the sort of how basketball started, I mean, it, that was how it started. But what sort of got me with the hooks in was. Um, not to tell too much of a sob story, but I mean, we all sort of had it happen to us when we were growing up. You know, I was picked on, I was bullied, um, you know, being so tall. I was very shy, very awkward, um, you know, couldn't talk to girls. Um, and um, uh, when I played basketball, I was sort of, re- that respect was shown. You know, if you didn't, you know, if you were still talking bad to me, I was going to kick your butt, you know. But yeah. as soon as the game finished, I found that people were back from going from being my best friend to all of a sudden not wanting a bar of me. And that really hurt. So I'd learnt to really sink myself into the game so I could uh, feel that sort of, that love, so to speak. Yeah. That's an interesting concept, Ben. I've read Lauren Jackson's book recently and she spoke a lot about a similar feeling growing up, like being this person who stood out because of her height and, mm-hmm. and how that kind of drove her into a onto the court as being the happy place, I suppose. Do you think... Ben, that society has changed any that kids growing up today with that kind of that kind of genetic gift of height would would feel any different to what you would today, mate? What you did yeah. back then, I should say. Look, I think it's great the fact that with the internet making everything so much more connected, people are understanding each other's differences quicker than we did before the internet. Mm. Um, I mean, we'll get to sort of what I'm what I've what I've done since basketball, but. One of the things that drives what I do now, which is an aged and disability, is a, a philosophy called person-centered thinking, which is mm. about you put the person that you want to support at the center of their own life, which whatever that means, if that, if that means sitting on the couch and watching you know, sport all day long or going out and playing sport all day long, whatever makes you happy, well, then go do mm. it. You know? I mean, if I, I saw a, a girl at the Macca's checkout with a, a nose hoop and you know, tats all over her body, and she was very professional, did a great job, but... Mm. but 20 years ago, when we were growing up, you would never have seen someone like that at Mac as a drive-through because it was just, oh, tattoos and, and piercings was just this stigma. But but differences are now being sort of absorbed in our culture and it's sort of adding to it. And it's the ones that are trying to stick back to the old days and, oh, no, that's not how it used to be. And you're just sort of holding everything back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I cool. agree. That's cool. So, so Ben, sorry, oh, sorry Strudy, but I just want to ask, from going from a kid who then started to uh, adopt basketball as a bit of an escape and, and you're excited about the Hunter Academy of Sport, how does that then translate to travelling to California to play the game mm, mm, in point. an age pre-internet? So when I was getting up every morning to do my, uh, my workouts because this is what the, the academy needed me to do, and then I, when I made the state team, the New South Wales country state team under 16, it was my first time making the state team when I was 15, um, and it was all sort of culminating. So it was the, the work the academy had me doing sort of had me feeling, okay, I can't just do this after school. I need to do it another time, and when do I have more before school? So luckily there was a man called John Hoyle who was a wonderful coach um, uh, mm. who just lived up the road from me, and he was fortunate to have a set of keys to the gym, and I had my L's. So he let me drive to the, to the gym in his car, and we'd shoot for an hour and go through all those things, and then that would sort of mix into my state training. And then by the time I won the national championship with the um, under-16 country uh, team, 
uh, and that was in 1990, my parents were starting to think, okay, something's going on here. This kid never sticks to anything, um, whether it's judo or the clarinet or you know anything, like the basketball <laughs> he's sticking with. Uh, so much so that he's giving up at 5.30 every morning mm. and going to, to go shoot hoops um, he, and then playing and then training after school and, and everything. So it became this whole thing for me. And, um, and then there was this basketball camp that was up in Coffs Harbour from this American coach. His name was Jim Yurkovich, and he was actually on his honeymoon. He was married to an Australian woman, and uh, he had a, a camp in, in Coffs Harbour, and I went to, and at the end of it, they asked him who was the best player of the, of the camp, and he said that I was. And they were like, oh, okay, why? Because I wasn't the best player, and I wasn't very showy or anything like that, but he thought I had the most potential. I was like, okay, great, but um, what does that mean? Uh, but my mum and uh, dad spoke to uh, to him afterwards, and uh, they, he found out I was going to America in August, and this was, I think, it was about in May or June. And they said, look, if things don't work out in California, um, come see us in Utah. Um, mm. And I said, okay, no worries. But you know, we had family in California, and mum didn't want to send me overseas to just anywhere because of all the stories you hear about America. And yeah. um, so I went to Cali and then after about two months there, um, and it was fantastic. I got there and I sort of made all these friends and um, actually had a girlfriend for the first time. And it was just, it was just the most phenomenal start. But then I found out that you couldn't fit in California. There was a rule that you couldn't go to a school for a sporting reason. And obviously being six foot 10 and coming from Australia, that's a pretty easy picture to draw. Yeah. So yeah. Said, you have to wait till your senior year. And mum and dad were like, no, nah, you're over there for two years to play basketball and finish your, uh, your high school um, schooling. Um, you're not going to just do one year and, and we sort of, and you waste your time. So I was like, okay. And then they called the Jim Yurkovich in Utah. And they said, yep, no worries. You can do both years in Utah. There's no rule in Utah like that. There's so, no rules in Utah. <laughs> well, except don't drink alcohol and everything. Well, you can you can have a lot yeah. of wives in Utah, so that, that's a bonus. He's got to be a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so I went to, to Utah, and it was really traumatic for me as a 16-year-old having to uproot everything I've just uprooted anyway to get to Cali, and then I've uprooted again to go to Utah. And I ended up living with these two brothers of the Catholic Church because the school I was going to was a private Catholic school. Had a very good basketball program, and Jim Yurkovich was very respected. He actually coached against Michael Jordan in the McDonald's High School American game, and he loves telling the story how Jordan won the game with a reverse dunk on the buzzer. Oh, wow. uh, and, that that uh, became a bit of a habit for Jordan. Just that became a habit. Winning games. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, and then yeah, the rest is history. I sort of stayed with uh, Jim Yurkovich. He ended up being probably looking back the best coach I ever played for, um, as far yeah. as knowledge and how he knew the game and how he knew how to coach me and get the best out of me. Yeah. Wow. When you uh, was, was there, now we, we mentioned before that um, we spoke about the internet bringing sort of people closer together and, you know, uh, tolerance is sort of, you know, sorted out quicker and people are more accepting of things. <coughs> Within America, things change quite significantly from state to state, um, from east to west, north to south. Was going from California, which is a bit more sort of, you know, a bit more, I guess, liberal and free and a bit more relaxed was moving from California to say Utah, quite a culture shock um, for, for you. 
Yeah, I think the the, the weather, um, like the snow. Um, when I arrived in in, in Salt Lake City uh, to the, the the house I was staying in for the first couple of weeks, there were icicles off the off the balcony, and I remember breaking one off and because you know <laughs> I'm a kid from Newcastle, and this is yeah. you know, it's fr it's frozen water, and they're like, oh, don't do that, Ben. That in a bit, yeah, because especially water dripping off the gutter. But uh, yeah. I was shoveling driveways because I was just like, this is so freaking cool. I'm up to waist deep snow. That's just this powder mm. that you have to travel to Threadbow or something like that to go see, but this is just in your backyard sort of thing. So everyone loved me because I was just this novelty. Yeah, that's cool. And that led, you know, that move to Utah, mate, that led then to you eventually. So it was Judge Memorial High School, right? Judge Memorial, yeah. It was a, um, uh, what they call it, a 3A high school. So um, in Utah, the biggest schools were 4As. But in Cali, there are five A schools, I believe, and in other parts of America, there are some much bigger schools. But but we were a three A school. And at that time, there wasn't many Australian kids going over there and doing that, was there? Or or mm. am I imagining that? So Andrew Gaze was the one that I was. I think it was eighty nine or eighty eight or something like that. Um, Switchy, help me out there with that one. Eighty nine. Um, he went to Seton Hall. Yeah, there you go. Um, I remember my brothers and I all sitting on the couch watching that and just sort of cheering him on. Here's this you know, young Aussie doing it, doing his proud in the American system with this huge, crazy crowd and the bands and all that kind of thing. And and I was just like everyone else, like you know, jaw on the floor. That's just so cool. Um, and little did I know that I was in for the same sort of thing. That's what was cool. this, the basketball scene like in Utah? Were there any sort of um, plays in that high school sort of uh, system that you sort of played with and against that sort of followed a similar tra trajectory for you through college and then Yeah, there was Nick, Nick Proud. Um, he was a bloke that grew up in Manly. He was the guy that was really touted as the next big guy. I mean, he was 6'11", he had the broad shoulders and he, you know, mm. good body and he sort of you know, had a lot of strength for his age. And I was just like you know, tall, skinny as a whip kind of thing, but I could move. Uh, and passed the ball really well. Um, but um, so, I mean, Nick was over there and he ended up going to Kansas with a scholarship in Kansas, is, you know, as you know, is a huge school. school. Um, and uh, I think Blake, um, I've got his, his surname, Bush, he's going to kick my butt when he finds out. Um, I played against him at Bankstown. He went on to play with the Kings. Um, he played for the Pirates at one stage. No, the Falcons, sorry, it wasn't the Pirates. He played for the Falcons um, in one of their last years. Um, can't think of his name, but he was over in Utah as well, um, playing for another high school. And I was sort of there watching, um, and then out he came, and I had no idea he was there, and I was blown away. But there was probably, to answer your question, Mac, probably about a, a dozen less people playing yeah. in America at that point. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and how did, so Utah then, you eventually you accepted a scholarship to the University of Utah. Was, was the University of Utah always going to be your path, Ben, from high school, or did you oh, did you look no. around? No way. I mean, in, in, in year 11, so my junior year at, at Judge Memorial, I was already getting, I think, the very first letter of offer, uh, or the letters you're getting, because you, it's, it's confusing, because when you're um, a high school athlete, and then all of a sudden you're blowing up and people want you to potentially play for their, their college as a next step, they send you all these letters, the little pamphlets, basically saying, you know, think of us or, you know, good game the other day or, you know, a little basically saying that yeah, we're, we're watching you. We're, we're, you know, we think you're cool and, you know, see how it goes. So I got the first one from Colorado State. Oh, no, from, you know, Colorado mm. University. And I was like, oh, wow, they want me. And I was like, oh, do, I, do I call them back, you know, as a this, you know, innocent guy? Yeah. And they're like, no, Ben, you, you just throw them away. You know, you're going to get lots of them. And yeah. boy, did I get lots of them. Um, you know, in, in my senior year, they really want you to, 
you know, choose where you're going before you start your senior year so they can build you up and you know, have this yeah. whole thing. But for me, I, it was, you know, when you're talking about the University of Virginia, you know, Notre Dame, uh, UCLA, um, you know, there so many big schools that were just sort of sending me stuff and saying, you know, this is uh, what we're offering you and we want to fly you out so you can see the campus and we can put on the whole show. Um, but I really nailed it down to, to two. Um, well, there was three, but then Notre Dame sort of dropped out because they signed another big guy. But um, it was down to the University of Virginia, which is an ACC school, um, yep. and um, uh, and the University of Utah. And I, I took the flight back to uh, UVA, and um, they showed me around, and it was the whole thing. And they sort of wined and dined me, and it was awesome. Yeah. Felt really sort of guilty about how much attention I was getting because I was just this, you know, naive, skinny kid from Newcastle, and here they are just lavishing all this stuff on you, and all these girls showing so much attention. And I'd never had so much attention of the girls in my life. Um, so a bit different uh, to the to being bullied, right? Yeah, very much so, Maka. I mean, and and that's sort of I think what's helped that keep me grounded post-basketball mm. and, and that kind of thing was that I grew from to one side of the spectrum and then had the other side of the spectrum offered to me and then now resulting somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. I guess when you're a professional athlete, you never lose the swagger. Um, yeah. But after what you've been through, but at the same time, I know, you know, what's important in life. So UVA is a, a pretty um, high-profile school and correct me if I'm wrong, Maka, they're the current incumbent NCAA champs because it wasn't a... Uh, the result this year, they won the year before. Is that correct? 2018, they won it? Uh, I'm just trying to think, actually, whether that was not the year before. But anyway, they're certainly they're a huge program, right? And what Tony Bennett's done with the Cavaliers. But back then, to be in the ACC and, and for Ben to consider, I can understand why you'd want to go there. Like, man, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. so that was that's in the same conference as uh, Duke, North Carolina. Mm. Um, some, some massive colleges. So you ultimately decided to go with the Utah Utes, um, who are a relatively sort of a big program themselves. And uh, we'll get to some of their um, notable alum a bit later. Um, but what ultimately made you decide to stick with the Utes or, or, or remain in Utah and go to college there? Yeah, well, um, probably the, the big one, uh, well, a couple of big ones, uh, obviously Majerus being an, a really well-known big man coach. He was actually um, a big man too, right? Literally, um, <laughs> but not so much in height, uh, very much in, in personality and in stature. Um, yeah. But um, but Rick, now very well known and uh, to be a good big man coach. Uh, Utah was a very good program, was top 25 the entire time I was going through high school and also while I was playing. Um, and, um, and at the end of the day, it was closer to Newcastle than Virginia was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's already a 12-hour flight to get to uh, Cali and then another, you know, two hours, hour and a half to get to Utah. And then, you you know, to get to Virginia, it's it's, it's a lot. Um, you know, and then you also throw on the fact that both Jim Yurkovich and his wife became my, you know, surrogate parents to a degree <coughs> when, I, when I was over there, came, became very close with them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that support network already built up after two years at Judge Memorial, um, was another big seller for me because if I was to go to Virginia, I was sort of uprooting again, starting again, and uh, and rolling the dice with a lot of unknown quantities. Yeah, how often were you in contact with your family during that period? Obviously, there's no there was no FaceTime or Zoom or Facebook or any, anything like that. Was that sort of you know a couple of phone calls a week? Thankful, yeah. Well, it was probably about once a week. Um, I would go into the, one of the assistant coach's office and he'd let me call home from from his office. Um, that was very nice of him. That would tend to happen. 
uh, after every game, uh, whether it was a home game or um, so. Yeah, basically probably a once every fortnight, to be honest now, but, but or once a week, depending on the games. Yeah, I imagine that would have been a, a great source of um, comfort and uh, reassurance and everything to speak to your folks, particularly where, you know, when, when you are facing sort of challenges on the court personally, uh, adjusting to those sort of environments, living in a different country. Mm. Um, I in, think in, that's something that's worth mentioning too, uh, Switchy, about uh, when I was in high school, when I was playing, it's, it's a good message for the other kids who are thinking of going overseas to, to, to be aware of is that when, when the games are playing and you're training and it's all happening, it's very easy to be away from home. The difficulty is when the game stops and, you have to, and you're just going to school and, and it's getting quiet. And yeah, you still talk to your family back home, but the lack of distraction can really get you and it definitely got to me. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear some um, the, the, the recruiting pitch given to you by uh, the coach, Rick Majerus, that we just we uh, just spoke about him a second ago. Um, I've heard many stories about he was an intense guy. He was uh, an angry man. Um, a range of different things that I've read sort of just through articles and, and obviously heard stories sort of off the grapevine. Um, what was that sort of pitch from him? Did he come into your house or wherever you're living at the time to actually to, to, to put that meeting to you? And what, what happened there? Um, well, I mean, obviously I wasn't in Australia when he came out to Australia. He visited, he flew out just to meet mum and dad and, and come to see the house and meet my brothers. Um, and obviously pitch them more than anything so that he got, no, they got to meet him and, and be assured that while, you know, I'm in his care on the other side of the world, um, you know, that he's a good guy and he's not going to do the wrong thing and, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think my mum and dad appreciated the effort he took to come over. Um, mm. and, uh, and he was very respectful when he was in the house and uh, uh, mum and dad yeah, did, did like him for that. Um, I see Nugget's got a, a bit of a smirk up in the top left of the screen here. So Nugget, there's sounds like there's more to this story. <laughs> oh no, where, where did he sit when he uh, landed? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so we had a couch that was just I think it was just a, um, a cheap and cheerful one from um, I don't know, I don't know, warehouse furniture or whatever that place is called, um, fantastic furniture, and um, it had best <laughs> to sit on the outside of the couch rather than in the middle because of the cushions, there wasn't a whole lot supporting it. So when, when Rick sat in the middle, everything sunk down and, um, and he was kind of stuck there for a fit. I think your brothers tell that story more because you obviously weren't there to see oh, it, but the brothers, that. they retell that every time I have a beer with them. I think The way they put that is, yeah, he sat down, his legs flew over his head <laughs> <laughs> and everyone sat there for a few seconds. Going what sure, is happening in the story, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Rick Majerus was a very rotund character. <laughs> yeah, look rotund. At, to give you a bit of back, uh, context on Rick, um, played at Ball State, um, you know, coached there as well uh, when he was older. I went, went on to Marquette, then went to uh, University of Utah, and um, he lived in the University Hotel. Um, he had pizzas sort of delivered to his room all the time. He came to to practice all the time with a bag full of bagels. And as college athletes, we just like, you know, scarfed yeah. them down before practice. He made us work for three and a half hours and we spewed them all back up again. But uh, Nice. Nice. So um, let, let's talk about that college experience. I think it's something that we sort of, you know, watch on TV a lot. And, and uh, unless you go there as an athlete, you know, our, our university sports system is worlds apart from what it is in the U.S., uh, I know Mac and I have been through the university sports system at our respective university games and tournaments. They are a far cry from from what we get in the US. 
I don't think you I don't can, think uh, I went compare. through. I think I drank my way through and can't remember it. But. I don't think yeah. you compare March Madness to uh, uni games. Definitely yeah. not. <laughs> it doesn't even come in comparison. So um, when you're living and, and playing in that environment, like um, how much sort of, you know, you obviously had, you had to study, you had to maintain your grades to remain eligible to play. Um, <coughs> was there sort of, you know, players that obviously weren't, there for, for the education, but they kind of had to be um, in, in order to progress. What was your sort of, did you sort of, um, you know, take classes or study, you know, in a field that, that was interesting or that you could sort of fall back on afterwards? Uh, with what degree I, I chose, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And for a very long time after I even finished playing professionally, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I was kind of hoping someone would just magically appear and say, okay, this is your job now and there you go. But um, when I was in college, you know, I thought, you know, you've got your business degree, you've got your, uh, you know, a sciences degree or, you know, sporting degree. I mean, it could be anything, but uh, I sort of thought, okay, what's a general one that I'm sort of interested in? And for me, it was sociology and criminology because uh, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with the sort of human psyche and how things work in a social aspect. And, um, that's what I started, and I sort of minded in criminology because of the I was interested in the criminal element of you know how you know society reacts in, in those sort of those sorts of spaces. Um, so yeah, look as far as sort of how school worked, I mean it it the way that the sporting was set up, I think we'll probably start there. Like with at the University of Utah, there was a gym. There were two gyms for sports. There was the good gym, which was this this where all the money went. And that was for three sports. It was for basketball, football, and gymnastics, because those three sports brought in all the cash. Um, they sort of propped up all the other sports, basically. And then there was the other gym of the university, which was the one for the baseballs and the softballs and swimming or whatever. Um, but ours was like this immaculate gym. And um, they always had you know, the best sort of beat rap music playing. And whenever I go to the gym now and I hear 2KOFM, I'm just like, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, I get it. You know, it's for the masses, but um, but for this gym, it was for you know young athletes with testosterone pouring out of them, or you know, whatever. You know, it was, um, you know, it was just geared up to that. And we had the best coaches and the best trainers, and we had the best supplements and everything sort of you know given to us. Whether you had to bulk up, like for me, I came in a skinny thing, and they were like, okay, you got to put twenty pounds on you, Ben, because you're going to get pushed around in the college system, and and I did. Um, but I was just you know. I, I was, that was just my body type. And I didn't yeah. sort of start filling out until I guess into my 30s. But um, um, yeah, so that was how it worked. And, and obviously the, uh, the, the, the women's basketball, even though it was still basketball, they weren't allowed to use that gym. Um, oh, really? That because, oh, wow. because it was the men's basketball, it was the women's gymnastics. There were no men's gymnastics, but the women's gymnastics, they were number one in the country. Yeah. Um, so they got to use it. And, um, and obviously the, uh, the football, the college football, uh, they were also very good. So they got to use it. So, um, but when it comes <coughs> to the training uh, routine, the women's team um, and the men's team, they would swap between who went first and who trained second on, on, in, in the gym. And so that was pretty cool, at least from a quality standpoint. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so you guys had a pretty good squad. Um, how many years were, were you playing there for? So it was a five-year scholarship, but I stayed for three before returning to Australia. Yep. Okay. So we started that first year. Uh, that would have was in. Uh, that was nineteen ninety three. Ninety three. Ninety three. Ninety four. Ninety three. Yep. 
So you did the 93-94 season, 94-95, 95-96. That's correct. So you were playing college basketball in a at a big school in, in a pretty big conference uh, that received a lot of exposure at the height of 90s basketball. So that sort of, you know, it's kind of like peak life. Um, well, I mean, and also in, in Utah, I mean, I think Utah is second only to Indiana when it comes to crazy basketball fans. Um, yeah. I mean, we, I know we skimmed through uh, the high school, but some, some of the high school stories, I mean, I could have, uh, there was once uh, we were playing against Jordan High School and it was, their, their gym probably could hold, you know, it was the same as what Broadmeadow Basketball Stadium is now. I mean, that was a high school gym. Um, and it was packed to the rafters, and this is our nemesis team, and we ended up beating them in overtime, but we were down by one point. I was fouled with two shots, and I know this is true to, uh, to God true. I had two foul shots, and I sort of sunk one, and no, so before I sunk the first one, I'm pumping the crowd up, and I'm thinking to myself, Ben, what are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> if you miss this, you're going to be booed out of the stadium, um, and you'll never sort of look yourself again in the mirror. But I just, you know, I was just in the mood. I was having a great game, and I sunk the first one, and I pumped them up even more for the second one. And I'm going, really, really, is this who you are? And I'm like, but anyway, I, I shot it and I sunk it, and we won the game. And you know, it was like, you know, the pin drop sort of uh, story uh, in a high school uh, gym that holds about what the, what Broadmeadow uh, Stadium does. Um, but that was just a drop in the ocean to what the University of Utah crowds were, or what the other college uh, crowds were. Um, you just can't describe it. Yeah, Let, let's run uh, through some of those seasons and some of those NCAA, NCAA tournament runs and experiences and also some of the notable teammates you had because there's a few uh, teammates that you went through Utah with that uh, went on to forge pretty successful careers after college. Yep. Um, so did you guys uh, make the NCAA tournament in each of your three years there? No. So um, in our first, the first year, so my first year I, I redshirted. So uh, to those who uh, don't know what that means, redshirting basically means that you travel with the team and you warm up with the team and train with you, do everything that you would do as a, a player, but you don't step on the court and play a minute of basketball. Mm. You do that for the entire year. What's the um, reason for that? that? Well, because you've got a five-year scholarship, so but you can only play for four years. So generally, okay. if you play for your first four years and that last year, you just get paid to go to school and finish your, your degree. Yeah. Mm. But if in my situation, because they came in so skinny um, and not well, I was underweight, I mean, I ate like, a, <laughs> like anyone would in that sort of period, but because of my body type, I was very skinny and I needed to bulk up to, to you know, especially to, to work in the post with those bigger guys. Um, so they thought the best thing for me to do was to redshirt. That way I could spend a year developing my body, getting in the gym, putting on lots of weight. And, um, but also it'd be an opportunity for me to go home at Christmas time to see my family. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, because I hadn't seen them at Christmas time for like, that was my third year away of missing Christmas. And so it was great and a really good time and to be able to go home and see them. Yeah. Cool. Second year rolls around and uh, you're playing now. Um, playing, playing now. Um, and it was interesting, actually. Another interesting story about Majerus. Um, when, when you're, if you're like on the practice squad, so if you didn't have a scholarship, and, but you're really good at basketball and you go to the University of Utah and you want to help the team or at least show what you can do, you can be what's called a gray shirt. And a gray shirt is the guys that if someone's hurt or if we need to have a five on five on five situation, you know, we've got guys on the sideline ready to jump in and fill any situation. Or if we've got, we want the gray shirt team to run through the other team's plays and we practice against those plays with the gray squad team playing the other team's plays. That's what we would do. Um, so 
um, when it came to my, sec my, well, my second year, which was my actual first year playing, um, I was I was going to be starting. It was sort of um, Majerus would my when I was redshirting. Uh, now I'm sort of jumping back and forth here, but when I was redshirting, Majerus, uh, like all the grey shirt guys, all he does is stroke your ego. He says, "Oh, you're the best. Oh, look at Melmoth. Oh, he's going to be an NBA All Star." And you know, and the other guys that were playing getting their asses chewed out, especially the really good ones who get chewed out the most. Um, they'd just be like hating on you because it's like you're not that good. And here we are getting our butts chewed out, and you're you know this tall, skinny, up-and-comer who's just barely moved in, being told you're awesome. And I'm like, stop telling me this, coach. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get my ass kicked. <laughs> yeah. um, but when I came into being my first year playing, I, I went from um, having my ego stroke to all of a sudden, man, with you're a piece of crap. And you, <laughs> oh, you, you got this little Australian voice. Big lip, big like, fucking speak like a man. You know, he would, he would really berate you. Um, and... and he really did make me sort of a deep voice, like you know, like an Adam Melmoth, you know, like go ball, ball, ball. You know, I was like that all of a sudden, and I think that's where Adam probably got it from, uh, apart from being so um, uh, competitive. But um, but Majerus, he the the more important you were to the team as far as you know minutes and that kind of thing, the more he gave it to you. So yeah. when I when I started as a freshman, when I was redshirting, I came in with Keith Van Horn. Uh, and we all know Keith went on to play for the 76ers and the Jersey Nets, had a mm. fantastic career. He was the best player before Bogut came to Utah. Um, but, um, but Keith came in, God's gift of basketball. He was just, you know, a real character. He came from Diamond Bar in California, which is, you know, South, uh, South Cali, and um, very competitive uh, circuit in the high school in Cali down in Los Angeles and he was sort of the cream of the crop coming out of that. So he, he came to Utah as a small forward, as a um, small forward, power forward. I came in as a power forward center kind of thing. <coughs> so, um, but what made Keith really good was that he was an amazing shooter and he was really quick. So if you were too close to him, he'd drive past you and dunk it. If you're too much off him, even with a hand up, he'd still knock the three down on you because he had that length and a really high release with his shot. And he would tell you every time he beat you, you know, he would talk you know, all kinds of shit. And, uh, and that would bother me because I, I'm not a big you know, shit talker. I just like to let my, you know, what I do on the court speak for myself. But, uh, but he was good at both. And I, that drove me crazy. Um, but come my second year when I was playing the first time, I was starting with Keith. I was at center. He was at power forward. And we went on to, uh, um, to the NCAA tournament that year. And uh, I'll never forget being introduced at home in front of 20,000 screaming fans, all standing up with a, a three-month waiting list to get a season ticket. I mean, it was just, wow. um, you know, from Newcastle, Ben, oh, it was just, I'd, I'd be screaming as I just came running out in the court to high-five my teammates because there's no other way for your brain to process it as a, you know, someone who grew up shooting hoops at cold main floor <laughs> stadium at Newcastle, you know? Yeah. Does that give you chills even today, mate? Like repeating even, that kind of even today, mate. Even today, it's um, it's sort mm. of one of those things where, and I'll think about it all the time. I think it's where the swagger comes from. It's where you when you do something like you dunk on somebody on the buzzer and you win the game, or you you hit those foul shots and you win the game, and everyone just sort of just thinks you thinks you're so wonderful. Um, you think all I'm thinking to myself is, oh my god, like I'm a fan in my own body, looking around like, did I just do that? You know, <laughs> and people always say, what's it like? Are you nervous? And I'm like, well, you've got no time to be nervous because, you know, it's like why why I got good in the first place. You know, you want that respect and you want to be good, um, and 
yeah, you don't think of it any other. You're so focused on beating the other guy. Yeah. Mm. So we had Keith Van Horn as a teammate. Um, who are, uh, I believe, Andre Miller and Michael Doliak. Were they also in that same squad? So yeah, when when I was um, when I went on to my second year, so it was my um, really confusing here. But so I was a freshman, but it was my second year. Um, and then Mike Dolia came in, and Andre Miller came in, and um, that was the start of a really big franchise for the University of Utah. With those two, um, we also had Brandon Jesse, who was a new player. Uh, he came from an, um, um, a Division Two school, or um, I, I believe. I'm, I'm, been a long time, but but he was another really good um, injection to the team as a, as a, like a sh- shooting guard, small forward. He could do both. He was kind of like um, Chris Williams from the Sydney Ram Kings, yep. yeah, the championship-winning team of ours. But he was sort of bulk, uh, thicker than, than Chris was, but that same kind of position that could fill either. Yeah, nice. Um, and you guys made, I believe, one a conference tournament. Is, is that correct? Or you progressed That's- through Two sweet sixteen switch. Two sweet sixteen. So obviously five ninety five ninety six. No, so we only had the one sweet sixteen. Um, yeah, that, well, that, yeah, that was in the final year. Um, so we lost the year before um, in the second round. We beat, uh, gosh, it was Long Beach State in the first round. Then we lost oh. to Mississippi State in the second round. So in, in order to make the NCAA, you either have to be voted in or become the conference champion from the conference tournament. So That's Utah right. at that point, was that the, the Mountain West Conference? Is, is that what? No, that was the, the WAC. West, the WAC, West Athletic, Athletic yeah. Okay. So what, what are some of the schools that featured in that? Because that's from, from memory was a, some pr- pretty high-profile schools alongside Utah. Well, it was, it was interesting, actually. Um, it, I forgot to mention this story. At the beginning of my first playing year, we actually got invited to the Maui Invitational which is yep. a, a very big uh, deal. You get eight teams go to Maui in, uh, in Hawaii there. And um, obviously Champaign University, which is the Maui University, they get the default invitation as well. Um, but, um, but basically seven other teams come, get flown over from every conference you know, that you can think of. So we had University of Indiana there. We had Maryland there. We had Michigan there. Um, you know, we were there. Um, but, um, but those were the big schools that I could think of. But um, And Joe Smith was playing for, for uh, Maryland at the time. Yeah. Um, Joe Smith being um, someone who played for the Golden State Warriors. I'm not she sure was who was the number one pick in the NBA draft. Yep, yep. Uh, so, yeah, he was a big deal at that time. But I was telling uh, my wife just the other day about how crazy college basketball is. And this is a perfect example. So we went to the tournament dinner the night before everything started and all the teams walk in the big auditorium with lots of tables where the fans can sit and we were on the on the big front stage where all the teams sat and um the last team to come in was the university of indiana and all of their fans were in there like they're all decked out in red white and blue and 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 you can see because they're all the, the utah indiana and utah fans are just silly about basketball but um when the university of uh, indiana came in led by bobby knight Every one of those Red Watton um, supporters stood up and started clapping and keep clapping until they all come in and then, then they all sit down and they're still clapping. And then Bobby Knight sort of gets up and says, and then they all stop in a heartbeat and sit down. But until he said to stop, they're standing and clapping like they're talking at a Donald Trump. Oh, wow. you know, it was just incredible. Um, and that was just a taste of them being in Maui, let alone what they're like, but back in Indiana. Yeah, Hoosier basketball has such a long history. 
But I suspect that that would be the reaction of many fans from the NCAA perspective. That the passion that those guys have for their schools is is unbelievable, and you know to have experienced that for yourself would be amazing. Yeah. Mm. So in, in the whack at the time, it was Utah, um, and you would have to travel all up and down the West Coast. Well, we had we had Hawaii in our conference at that time, so that was unfortunate having to go to Hawaii once a year to you know, yeah. and we'd always go there sort of like a couple of days early so that we could um, you know acclimatize. Yeah, so, <laughs> why not? <laughs> which which was nice of coach. I'm not sure if it was for him or for us that he was doing it for, but um, Aloha, Rick. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rick in a speedo was was a sight. Too. Oh damn! Um, but um, no, we had New, uh, um, Hawaii, New Mexico. Um, we had um, Texas El Paso. So was that? Um, uh, I forgot what their um, initials were. But um, we had Colorado the miners State. or something. I think I don't know. UTEP maybe. I don't know. We had Air Force was in our um, our. Um, conference and that was fun going to Colorado Springs because we had to go to like the Air Force Academy and 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 playing in Utah was was high. I remember when I first got to Utah to go to high school, um, my first session I was because of the attitude, my lungs were burning to breathe for like a week. Um, oh, like yeah. it hurt to breathe for about a week after my first session um, with the with the Judge Memorial boys um, because of the attitude. But when we went to Colorado Springs to play them, that was another level altogether. And I remember playing there and having that similar feeling of that of the lungs being stretched, um, and it was, uh, it was a little bit extra hard playing them. We always won because it was the Air Force Academy, but um, but it's like playing New Zealand. If you sort of didn't take them easily, they'd beat you. But if yeah. you, know, you, you took them seriously, then you'd beat them. It's a wonder the Denver Nuggets aren't uh, as good as what they could be. I guess with the advantage of playing at altitude regularly. Just, just rebuilding, mate. Rebuilding. Twenty-five <laughs> year rebuild. Uh twenty-seven, but he's counting. That's it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So let's talk about this tournament run uh, to the Sweet Sixteen, and because you know when when that's going down every year, you know us boys like to get the our brackets together and you know um, pick who we think is going to win. And there's always the Cinderella stories and all that sort of stuff, and just the hype regarding a March Madness sort of um, experience from a fan perspective is always better than watching, you know, pro basketball most of the time. If it's not the playoffs, you know, your, your NCAA basketball, you could argue is actually a more exciting and purer form of it. And mm. I, I actually can't believe the amount of close games um, there are pretty much every game uh, in an NCAA tournament, just, you know, one-point games, two-point games, games down to the wire. It's uh, something you seldom see at any other time of the year. But to actually live that, breathe that and, and be part of that, would have been uh, something else. Yeah, look, the, the real big one for me is obviously the Sweet 16 game itself. Um, the games before that, the Round 64 and the Round 32 game, um, yeah, they were big because of the NCAAs. I mean, everything you do, there's just like, you're a rock star. I mean, we, you have police escorts for games and, and you know, people lining the, 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 the entryway and exit. And it's just like, it's the circus show. But the Sweet 16, I mean, forget about playing anything beyond that. Um, but Sweet 16 was in Minneapolis this year for us against Kentucky, <coughs> number, number one team, and went on to win the whole thing, unfortunately. But we met them in round 16, in the 16th, um, Sweet 16. And um, it was a corner of the Minneapolis Dome that we played in. Um, I think the, the whole place seats 
I mean, maybe you guys can quote me here, but you know, 80, 90,000 uh, people in the Minneapolis stone. Yeah, it's pretty this close. Was, I think it's a tick over 90. This, we were in wow. the corner of that stadium with this big, huge, like curtain. I mean, like from the roof to the floor, sort of curtain that they had, sort of thing, where they curtained off the other half of the stadium, kind of thing. And there was a sea of red and white, which are the Utah fans on one half, and a sea of red and blue on the other, which is Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I think there was 56,000 people watching that game. Um, I mean, how many watched the State of Origin games? Yeah. Um, 30 at the Sydney Football Stadium. Was that Kentucky yeah. team uh, the team with Jamal Mashburn? That's the one. Uh, like yeah. They had um, uh, their top five made the NBA. Wow. Who were they? Jamal Mashburn. Oh, gosh. Um, if, you, if you told me the names, I would tell you. But there was a, a, um, a, young, a guard that was there that was – Really explosive. Uh, I think he went on to play for the uh, Golden State Warriors. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I didn't really follow much of uh, of, of the NBA. Um, yeah, since I mean, uh, Jamal Mashburn was was one of the the the, the big. Pro- I mean, I remember as a, a high school kid collecting basketball cards, and you know Jamal Mashburn is. I think he was the fourth pick in that draft. You know, getting his rookie card was a thing, and you know he went to a friendly <laughs> bad D- Dallas Mavericks team, but he kind of. Um, Made them popular alongside Jimmy Jackson, um, and, that, and then Jason Kidd came along. So they were kind of uh, the the up and comers of that era. Here you yeah. go. They were, they were known as the Untouchables. All right. Uh, Derek Anderson, Tony Delk, Walter Tony McCarthy, Delk. Ron Mercer, Nazar yeah. Muhammad, Mercer. Mark Pope, Jeff Shepard, Wayne Turner, and Antonio Walker. Wow. Oh, yeah. Turner didn't he play in the NBL? Wayne Turner. He's been to Bell. Tassie Devils, maybe. He doesn't give a shit about any of those blokes. He put them into the wall. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Nugget. You can probably check this as our stat man, but I think Tony Delk maybe is the biggest Reggie in NBA history to have two 50-point games. Uh, I'll, he, I'll, he had one I'll, for Phoenix and Philadelphia. If I... I'll, I'll check that, but you were right about Wayne Turner. Uh, played for the Townsville Crocs in 2 03. There you go. Yeah. Wow. And, the, and the Breakers in 07 and 08. There you go. Excellent. All righty, let's kick on. So we've gone through absolute, well, that'd be an amazing experience just to, yeah, be in the behind the scenes of that. And then we get to, um, what, 95, 96, and the decision comes to come home. What what sort of swayed you that way? Good question, Nugget. Uh, I was actually, actually going to just interject and say, what was it actually like to, I mean, that, that, that college experience would have been so good what was it actually like to actually make a decision to leave? Like how did that, it would have been, you know, a fairly traumatic decision in, yeah, look, in a it way. Was, it, it was, it was difficult. Um, one thing that I sort of, it started the, at the beginning of my, um, of that second year, year playing. So my third year into my degree of the, of my, of the five years um, where I was look, getting ready to go back to America from my time back in Australia, um, you know, obviously for the, for the winter time. And um so I was going back to America's autumn and I was finding myself just not looking forward to it. Um, and I was, um, you know, thinking, well, I gotta go, you know, this is what I've always wanted to do and what I've been working so hard to do. And I was just finding myself like when I was, when the season was over, I'd want to do nothing, but, but anything else, like no basketball. I, I, I because with Majerus, it's everything with Majerus. And if it's everything for Majerus, it's everything for you. Um, so, I mean, we, with, uh, 
with Majerus, not only does he live in a hotel room, but when we go on the road and, you know, every couple of hours, you've got something to do with him, whether it's, um, if you want well, well, I mean, you've got your, your meals, that kind of thing. But I mean, like, if as far as game prep, um, if we couldn't go to do a shoot around at a court, he'd go to a playground. Like, we went to one playground in South Central when we were playing, I think, um, uh, <laughs> one, one of the teams in LA. And there was like the doof, doof, cars going around the block as we were, you know, with the spotlights on us. And all the, and then as the, we first got there, it was pretty empty. But by the end of it, there starts to be a bit of a crowd forming. And that's when our security guy goes, look, we've got to get going. But Macheris was like, oh, five more minutes. And the guy goes, no, we leave now. Um, uh, other times where we couldn't find a gym or a parking lot, we would he would hire a function room and he would tape the squares on the floor and we would do, like there was a ball in someone's hand, but it'd be a packet of chips, you know, and we'd run through plays in a function room that, you know, it would, wow. we would never get a chance to stop um, and have time to ourselves through the season because it was just all about that. And that's what made him a great coach and made us a great team, I suppose. But... But to me, it was burning me out. Yeah. And, um, and then you've got the guys like, you know, Keith Van Horn and that sort of thing that went on to be great, you know, because they didn't stop. And when it came to the offseason, they were still wanting to practice and play and shoot. And, and I didn't, to be honest. I was just, I wanted a break. And But when I went back to Australia, that was what I wanted to do. Was, was I wanted to ball my hand all the time. I wanted to shoot. I wanted to play. I wanted to, you know, that's all I wanted to do. But going back to America, I found myself... Tell mum and dad, I'm not really looking forward to it. Um, and then again, it, it would develop through the year where we just finished the Sweet 16 and oh my God, what a ride. And then I want to be left alone. And then, no, no, here we go. We've got camps. we got, you know, come scrimmage every weekend. And I was like, mm. I don't want to. Um, so I, that was starting to, to weigh on me. Where like, what am I doing? Um, you know, this is important. And then Majera starts seeing this sort of attitude from me and saying, look, I'm going to recruit over you. Mm. And I was like, wow, coach, um, all right. Um, and then I've gone back home and I'm thinking I was going to return for my, it was going to be my third playing year, the fourth year of my scholarship. And um, dad's like, why don't you stay here and turn pro? I'm like, I don't know if I'm good enough, dad. It's like, well, you're already practicing with the Falcons and you're doing pretty well with them. Um, why don't you? Um, and and um, I'd, I'd just sort of gone to the under 23s uh, practices to, and I made that team and, and then I was getting a lot of attention from uh, Ian Stacker, who was the coach. Um, he was assistant coach at Geelong, or he may have been the coach at Geelong at the time. Um, he wanted me to play for them. Um, and, um, and I was like, I don't play for Geelong. Okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to play for the Falcons. I've always wanted to play for the Falcons. Um, but I just didn't think I was good enough. Mm. And then when I sort of made the decision and I, I called coach, I thought he'd be like, you know, he'd be happy, but he was devastated. He was calling me names. He was very upset. Um, you know, he... You know, I was part of this you know, group that he was building and, you know, and it was, you know, in hindsight, I look back and we made the grade eight the next year and we made the final the year after that, which would have been my senior year, you know, my last year playing. So, mm. um, so on one respect, you know, I missed that. But on the other respect, I saved my basketball career because I was literally thinking of quitting the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you, you, think, you think that decision to come home, mate, meant that you could actually continue playing the game and protect your love for it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, Maka. Um, it was I, I loved the game, and, and when I was when I was in that sort of mind frame where it was just all about basketball, that mm. was my happy place, like it was for Lauren. Um, but when I was in America, it was more like a job. It was more like this, 
task I had to do. And if I didn't do it, I was going to get berated. Even if I did do it, I was going to get berated. Um, mm. And uh, for some people, that brings the best out of them. But it just doesn't for me. I'm more of a carrot guy than a stick guy. Mm. That sounds a bit like um, a similar situation to one of our previous guests, Caddy uh, Ebsery, w- uh, went through. She took a little bit of a hiatus from the game, uh, essentially was burnt out or, you know, lost the passion of love and then, you know, uh, had to, had to you know, do something else in order to reignite it. I guess in your case, coming back home to uh, join the Falcons and the NBL was, was it. Yeah, and, and it was bittersweet because while it was great for me to make that decision, I'd made the Australian Under-23 team and I was really excited to be part of that because, I mean, I was gone from the Australian scene for five years and here I am back on it again and meeting guys like Chris Anstey and Sam McKinnon and, I mean, I knew Aaron Traher since, I was, since he was 13 playing in the Under-16. He was playing Under-16s when he was 13, Aaron Traher. Um, but um, but all these guys basically who went through like Scotty McGregor, a Newcastle legend, mm-hmm. um, he grew up in the AIS. Um, I didn't go the AIS route because they wanted me to wait a year. I didn't want to wait a year. I went to America. Um, mm-hmm. So I came back to this unknown quantity who was all of a sudden just kicking butt and had this American drive and, and big man mentality in me that was unseen <coughs> on the Australian circuit at the time. I mean, I think that's why Stacker loved me so much was because I was just this big guy that actually played physically and knew how to move his feet and create space and, um, and secure the block. Um, and not a lot of the bigs did that. So um, the, the, me coming back on the scene, I really wanted to make a name for myself. And um, while I was happy and excited to do that, Majerus was berating me back in Utah saying that I was a sellout or I was this or that. Um, and I mean, from his perspective, you know, I'm sure he, he was pretty upset, but from my perspective, I didn't think he wanted me and I definitely didn't want to be there the way I was feeling. Yeah, mm-hmm. fair, fair enough. So if we just, uh, look at that timeline, you mentioned the under 22 uh, or three team, um, you guys went on to play in a FIBA world championship. Was that after you had done your first season back in the NBL or beforehand? No, that was, that was... Look, um, that was when I'd already started playing. So my first year with the um, Falcons was only six games. Uh, it was yep. the end of the year. I started halfway through, and uh-huh. um, but it was a six-game contract that I signed, but it was uh, with a, the following year also as part of the contract. Yep. Um, so I'd played the six games, and then I believe it was uh, – was it after those six games, Nugget, that uh, – that we did the under 23. I'm forget the timeline, but yeah, uh, 90, 97. So it was, yeah. you, you did the end of the 96 season and then it led into 90, 97 season sort of kicked off, but then now world championships were in August, 97. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find the um, coming from college basketball to the NBL sort of mid nineties? Was, was there much of a difference in uh, the game and the way it was played? Was it more physical here or skill level was higher over there? Um, well, playing with, with well and truly developed men um, yeah. by the time we got to the, to the professional ranks. I mean, you, in college, you've got a lot of, you know, physically developed men playing there, but they're still sort of not that, men, that you know, uh, a real manly or adult mindset, so to speak. So, I mean, um, in the professional ranks, you don't, you know, it's, it's, it was different only, I suppose, in the way that the crowd was. Um, and yeah. uh, I mean, like the crowds were very different. I felt like I was playing, you know, down a grade versus playing professionally. So that was, it was business as usual as that regard. But, you know, as far as any other changes, just like the size of the guys that you're playing with or against, they were just, they were just men versus boys. Yeah. We're going from being in with Michael Doliak to Vlahov. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I mean, similar sizes there when you're talking about that. But um, but no, I mean, like more, I guess, developed. I mean, like I famously said something about Mark Bradkey having old man strength in an interview. Um, and uh, I think that's true because when you play, it's like when you wrestle your grandfather. Yeah, he's old, but he's still got that old strength where he can really just continue. And it's like, that's what it felt like when you're playing those guys is that they've just got this strength behind strength that you don't yeah. have as a... There a wasn't a lot that could move Mark Bradkey, that's for sure. Or Perry Cameron, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> okay. oh, a little guest. Hello there. <laughs> and daughters is popped in. So Ben, um, one thing that we just touched on pre um, going live on this is um, that under twenty two or uh, that yeah the under twenty twos FIBA World Cup um, or under twenty threes whatever the age group was, um, which they don't have that age group anymore. <coughs> but um, you guys actually won the gold medal for that tournament, a FIBA World Cup tournament. And I, I kind of feel like that's something that uh, that kind of gets sort of, you know, overlooked a little bit in in the scheme of things. And probably, you know, that was a, a massive achievement for Basketball Australia at that time um, to be so successful at a global level. And uh, the guys in that squad was, um, you know, it was definitely, it was quite an amazing crop of talent. So... Uh, I mean, I, as a basketball fan, rem- remember watching that and jumping up and down when when, you know, when the game was on Channel 10. I was watching it in the lounge room, um, which, which is fantastic. But um, just talk us through that that, that tournament in general and, um, you know, some of the players that you played against um, because the, from memory, there were some, some notable uh, players from that, that tournament. Well, that was when it was Manu Ginobili. Yeah, <laughs> Ginobili. Yeah, gosh. Um so yeah, we we started actually with exhibition game against America in Sydney, uh, and that was when Majerus um, came over. Who was Majerus was actually coaching the Americans, oh, wow. ironically, <laughs> in that um, when they came to to be part of that tournament. And um, this is an all amateur team. There were no professionals uh, playing in this team, even though there was a lot of young players that could have joined in that group um, that were professionally uh, playing professionally. But um, they they chose to stick with uh, with just college players, um, and. Uh, so we, we won that game in Sydney, and um, and yeah, that was that was good to win that game because Majerus has again come over to Sydney and, and spouting things in the press, trying to you know, speaking negatively of me again, uh, due to my decision to return to Australia rather than coming back to Utah. So that was a unnecessary distraction uh, for me. Um, but to win that game and play well, um, and then uh, going into the tournament gave me a little you know, extra shot of confidence. So um, our first game going into the tournament was against Turkey. Uh, in Melbourne, and as anyone who's been to Melbourne knows, there's a very strong Turkish presence in Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, it felt like we were playing in Istanbul yeah. um, when we went out on the court. It was very little. We could see our families, that kind of thing, but it was mm. cheering for Turkey. Um, obviously, they were Australian citizens, but very proud of their culture and um, uh, saw that opportunity to, to cheer on the home team, as it, as it speaks. And... Um, Prior to that game, we had Andrew Gaze come into our locker room and give us a, a bit of a, a speech about you know good luck and that kind of thing, and he and he sort of gave a, a story about do it for the do it for the Anzacs, you know. I like, think of the spirit of the Anzac spirit, yeah, and, we're all, and we're all going out there like, yeah, come on, let's do it, you know, you know, a lot of history and pressure, and you know, let's make them proud. And then we went out and we played very hard and we lost, and um, it was the very first game, and here we are, you know, playing at home in a world championship. You know, a lot of expectation and fantastic <coughs> team, a lot of talent, a lot of height, a lot of depth for, you know, for 22-year-olds. 
and and we lost and um and it wasn't and convinced fairly convincingly so um that really rocked us mm. yeah wow was uh hito turklu in that team i believe he was yes yeah a couple of other guys that uh, I can't remember their names, but uh, forged, you know, quite successful international careers after that. Um, is there any reason, Maka or Nugget, that you guys know why that age group doesn't exist? Was that the only um, world championship for uh, 23 and under at that point? Uh, I think mainly, mate, <clears throat> FIBA have moved away from so many age group-based competitions because of that challenge that Ben spoke about with regards to professional versus amateur. Yeah, um, so many players are younger by, now, aren't they? By the time they reach the age of, say, 21, 22, They're already... then generally uh, they're having a professional career. Like, you know, Ben had just started at that particular point in time. There's not a lot of desire for them to then commit to, you know, going and spending a summer you know, playing any any type of competition because there's professional pressures yeah. and expectations on them. So, yeah. yeah, from my understanding, that's why they've moved away from those type of older age group competitions. Yeah, nice. Makes mm. that win a bit more special then, Ben, if they, if they don't do it anymore. Oh, look, it was it was special in lots of reasons. Um, but, um, but like, I think, um, you know, going back to Ben Simmons, I mean, um, I was talking to uh, Mr. Pfeiffer um, uh, some time ago when he was mentioning that, um, ben Simmons can't sort of take us the regular photo because everything that he posts has to have like an advertisement or a, or a something attached to it because he's just gotten so big. Um, and similar to these professional players these days, they can't take the risk. Uh, like take, um, you know, the number one draft pick recently playing for the Pelicans. Um, yeah. yeah, he, you know, didn't play that well, the rest of the game while well, they took him out of that college game because he hurt his foot or, you know, there was all these people blaming the this or that because he, you know, he could have lost Nike so much money or, I mean, there's just so much sort of hanging on that's separate to him. I mean, to get to the, I'm, I'm segueing all over the place here, but there was a, a line mentioned in the last dance by Rodman uh, in mm. one of the recent episodes where he said, the game of basketball is easy. It's mm. the other stuff that's yes. the problem. Um, yeah. and, and that's what's going on here with these athletes is that they've got this game that does everything for them, but, oh, no, you can't do that, or you can't do that because you might jeopardise that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Going back, absolutely... to, back to Zion, though, he went to Duke, so he's obviously a jerk anyway. So. <laughs> Coming out behind that rubbish from you, it's yeah, like, you know, we've got a bloody bas- <laughs> basketball legend with us. I'm not going to waste his time with your <laughs> So Ben, you you are recalibrated after that loss to Turkey, uh, and then uh, things got back on course after that. Yeah, well, we had a, a fairly um, you know, pardon the pun a layup our next game against Egypt. Um, yeah. You know, they they tried very hard and, and lost very quickly, um, but it was good for us to get back on uh, on board to uh, and on the right track. <coughs> so moving past Egypt, I think we went on to play Spain next. Korea. Um, Oh, Korea. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Korea, another good game to uh, to get under our belts. Um, I think um, um, Asian basketball, I have to say, has come a long way since I was playing um, around that age. Um, I think um, Yao Ming and that new generation of Asian players have changed the culture of the game over there for them. Um, prior to Yao Ming, whenever I was playing, it was Japan, China, Korea in an, in an international game, they were just about shooting threes, driving and kicking, driving and kicking. Yeah. Um, it was sort of like playing Brazil. They also played a similar game back then. Um, 
But since Yao Ming came along, he was the first one that had ticker where he was like, come on and, you know, get after the ball and, you know, and, and diving on loose balls and, you know, and showing that sort of spirit that, we, that Australians are used to. Um, that didn't happen before then. So when we played the Koreans, you know, everyone sort of saw, you know, as long as we stopped the outside shot, you know, we'll win the game. And, uh, yeah. and we had plenty of talent to do that. Yeah. Moving into the tournament, uh, you guys uh, obviously progressed to the quarterfinals. Um, who was that quarterfinal matchup against? America. In the quarters. So well, before yeah, that, we had, we, had, we had Spain. We had to beat Spain to get to the quarters because we, uh, we lost to Turkey in the first round and Turkey went on to be undefeated. Wow. Um, and um, Did you play against the Gasols? No. No, we didn't. Spain. No, too, too young. I think too, young? too young? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, not by much, though. Yeah, good one. I wonder, if, I wonder how close they were. Yeah. Mm. But um, so we had to beat Spain and Spain were also like us. They'd lost one game and won the other two. And we had to win that one to be the second team to go through. So it would have been us and Turkey. So we beat Spain. That was a really close game because they had some big guys too. And um, got through the quarterfinal against America. Now, America was also second in their pool because Puerto Rico was the, was the number one seed on, in their category. Carlos mm. Arroyo. <laughs> so... Um, as it turned out, we played America and we trashed them. Uh, yep. We just played absolutely phenomenal. Um, our guards just shot the lights out, um, and we went on to win. I think by about twenty-eight points, something like that. it was. It was a lot. Were you throwing um, um, laser stairs over at uh, Rick Majerus after every made basket that you guys had <laughs> when you're on the court? Again, not my style. Um, you know, I, I let the game do, my, do the talking for me. Um, and uh, but the one thing I did get in when, after the game was I shook coach's hand and I said, "Tough break, coach." Um, <laughs> and, and that was that was sort of my way of sort of saying, "Like let's let's bury, let's bury the hatchet." Yeah, fair enough. Mm. Yeah, it's good. And it was all good after that with him. Uh, well, it was for me, but not so much for the players on his team. Um, they got the usual Majerish treatment. Um, uh, sort of because of that loss. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and there was one story, I'm seeing um, Pfeiffer smile at the moment because he's, uh, there was one story that I didn't tell about a time in, uh, in college where we lost a game on ESPN to a team that we shouldn't have lost to. And, and then we had a backup game the next day and we were having a bit of a, a walkthrough uh, prior to that game. And I was defending Mike Doliak in the post in a sort of a mock situation but apparently I wasn't guarding him with the correct distance with my elbow to his back. <laughs> apparently, and I should have known this because I did know this, but I wasn't doing it. It's supposed to be a six inch gap between yourself and the player you're guarding in the post. <laughs> I wasn't having a six inch gap between me and the guy in front of me. And because Majerus was still livid because we lost to Wyoming and a nobody team uh, on ESPN in their gym and they cut down the nets after they beat us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, coming back to Salt Lake City to, to, to play the next night uh, with Majerus's ire um, wasn't fun. Um, but at the practice, I missed up with that six inch gap. So Majerus decided to scream at me and pull his pants down and show his penis to everyone in front of him saying, the average size of the white male dick is well, six, is six effing inches. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'll Everyone. tell you what, if that happened, happened these days, you, you'd have been sacked. Can't do that these days. Uh, wow. Every, Rick Majerus, big everyone behind, 
everyone yeah. behind Rick was losing their shit. <laughs> Mike Doliak and I were our blood drained from our faces, and we just stood there and took it. Wow. <laughs> That is a scene that will never leave your mind. I suggest it was the single best story be I could ever tell about what, how much passion that man had for the game. Wow! Yeah, you said Ben Melnis autobiography, chapter seven, the day I saw Rick Majerus's dick <laughs> <laughs> with peripheral Macca. I could not yeah. look down. But uh, I, could see I, did, I didn't look down. I didn't look down. <laughs> we have some. Uh, We've got some pretty passionate friends about their basketball, but I'm I'm certainly sure that none of them would would get their get their wang around and, and manifest their passion in, in in such way, or well, at least not for basketball anyway. Well, I, don't, I don't know. When I was coaching the uh, 2005 State League Championship team, there was a few uh, nasty uh, training sessions. Let me tell you. Did you <laughs> uh, ever did you ever drop the strides nug and show the boys the gap that you wanted them to keep in the post? I, I didn't want to keep them that close together, mate. Just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Expectations are different in state league, I suggest. I suggest you were happy with them to be 10 inches away. So, so you roll the uh, states in the quarters. Um, by 22. Yep. Semi final was versus Argentina again. Argentina featuring Manu Ginobili. Yep. So uh, we've now got the semi final against Argentina. And. Um, <laughs> um, gosh, did I, I think I mentioned America and, uh, and Turkey were, got through, but um, um, yeah, I'm not sure how it obviously worked out, but uh, Argentina uh, were, were met us in the semifinals and they had Manu, they had another big guy that I was actually good friends with who went on to play, I think also with the Spurs, he was a... a Luis Scholar? Yeah, it must be, he was a 6'10 bloke, yeah. um, sort of blondish hair. Um, yeah, I, I got along with him quite well. Um, but Oh, um, that would have been Fabricio Alberto. That's him. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Yep. Um, yeah, they had a really good team as well. Um, but Manu was a fantastic shooter. They had a great shooting team. Um, and um, yeah, we um, having played them and lost to them, I think in the first round as well. Gosh, I've got a terrible memory. Um, yeah, you did. So, you did lose lose to them. So we lost to Turkey in the first round. That was for sure. But we also lost to uh, to Argentina um, in in the preliminaries as well, and still managed to get through. Um, so. Wow. Beat America, played amazingly, and we were really starting to peak at this point. Um, going to the semi-final again, really surreal. Getting the police escort through Melbourne from the, from the hotel, be very cool. Um, and uh, yeah, back and forth with Argentina, uh, really could have gone either way. Um, down by, gosh, this is where you guys can really step in and help me out with. Okay, I'll take you through the commentary. So let's go, Nugget. Take it away. There's a uh, minute to go. They come down, wait to right at their buzzer. Ginobili hits hits the N1 and they come down the Australia now down by two with an inbound with I think it was nine seconds to go. Take it away, Benny. Yeah, oh gosh. So um yeah, good pass goes to uh, uh Aaron Traher, you know, in his favorite spot. Gosh, puts it up in the uh you know, on the wing, and uh, it was nothing but net and uh um, all I remember doing is just instinctively was just sprinting onto the court just to be near my, my teammates. Um, and uh, it just culminated in a big stacks on on the court. Um, yeah. Um, I, th- yeah, that beat everything um, prior. Um, uh, there was an under 12 state final that I, we won against Wollongong that I <laughs> cried my heart out because we lost them in overtime or by one point in the conference, Sydney conference or in the country final. But the state final, we beat them by one point. It was like that. But 
with you know times a thousand more people watching you <laughs> the weight of the nation on your shoulders that's right and that was and just it, the, that was the semi-final as a point of note Treher actually shot uh, he only made five he made five shots in that game and five of them were three pointers so mm. He was 0 of 3 from, you know, and he was 5 of 8 from behind the three-point arc. So he shot 62% from behind there. And, and yeah. to, touch, to touch on old, um, Simon Dwight as well, hit two massive threes just before that. I was just going to say that. Look, like, like Jordan's saying, you can't mention his name without Scotty Pippen. You can't mention that three without Simon Dwight's three before that. It yeah. was bigger. It was um, out of rhythm. I mean, he sort of, it was in rhythm for Simon, but it was not what we... Yeah. Well, looked ugly as hell design. yeah it was one pass and he shot the three from the top of the key and usually that's like a coach going no get move the ball around more get a better shot but simon caught it in stride that was his shot he took it and he made it and that sort of gave us that opportunity to to get the ball back and set it up for aaron yeah well yeah. and then uh you guys uh played was it turkey in the final puerto rico Puerto, oh, Puerto Rico, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Puerto Rico also, uh, they, were, they were undefeated going into the final, but we didn't care. After we beat America the way we did and after we beat Argentina, and, like, and that's, you know, that was ours. There was no going back. And we just went out there and just smashed them. Yeah, wow. And then got the gold. And, um, yeah, that was the first time a men's senior team had won. Um, or, um, or I guess, it, is it considered a senior team, the under 23? But definitely a, a men's... Australian team who won a gold medal at the World Championships. Yeah, I mean, with the Olympics only three years away, um, you know, that was probably, you know, uh, basketball in Australia was entering a, sort of an exciting time where you had sort of, you know, guys like Gaze and Heal and Brakey, those sort of elder statesmen who'd been around the NBL for a, a few years who were sort of, sort of, you know, in their prime or, or coming to the end of it. But then you had this new wave of this great... Uh, generational talent coming through from a team that had sort of won at under 23 level. So things were certainly on the up. I know for Argentina, that, that particular Argentinian team, um, most of those guys in that squad formed the foundation for their gold medal winning um, team in Athens. So that's, that's right. Um, you know, as basketball in Australia was, uh, it was all happening at that point. It's all happening. So we, geez, we, we, we're taking our time to, Thanks for your time here, Ben. But this is just a great stuff. I love it. Um, so we're we're jumping jumping in now. So you're coming back a gold medalist, back to the Falcons, and um, yeah, we're. Oh. Who was coach then when of the Falcons, Ben? When you first came, when you first saw. When I first started was Tom Wisman. Yep. Um, and then after Tom moved on, um, Dennis uh, Sean Dennis was the assistant, and he, he moved up to the head coaching job. Yep. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah. So that was yeah. So I came back to Sean Dennis's um, uh, team, and um, to be honest, this was the year that I um, really blew up uh, because there was another fire in my belly. Um, blew up I in a good way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, there was a. Uh, I was there was an Australian team picked to tour America, and I wasn't chosen on it. Um, I think, um, um, and that, that really stung me, um, and I sort of spent that off season with Sean Dennis um, and we were doing beach runs. We were doing sprints at the, at the Oval and Merriweather. We were doing sort of everything and anything. And by the time the season started, um, I was just, you know, climbing the walls. I couldn't wait to get, to get started. And um, unfortunately that was a really big rebuilding year for the Falcons. Uh, it was the year following on from um, uh, David Van Dyke, um, Scott Linus. Um, so we had, we had Butch Hayes and, David Simmons is our two imports. 
Mm. Two, two very fine imports, uh, two very fine role players, um, and uh, very much what a bunch of young players needed. Um, uh, uh, actually, no, that was the year before. Gosh, um, I am showing my age now. No, so that was the year before, but uh, the next year, our imports were, um, I think it was Dave Simmons still. Isaac uh, Burton. Isaac Burton, and was it Dave Ice Simmons? Burton. Ice Burton, there you go. He was and, a highlight reel. And, uh, and Terry Johnson came in that year as well. I mean, he was another really good, um, you know, veteran player. Um, so, yeah, I, I came into that, um, I guess, really, you know, and showed a lot more than what was anyone was expecting. And, and that drive of not making that that touring team to America, um, you know, by the time I the season wrapped up and I was getting the call from um, uh, the Aussie coach to, to that saying that, look, you've made the team, um, yeah, it was like I thought I'd be blown away, but I, to be honest, I wasn't. I was like, okay, cool, thanks, coach. Yeah, it was sort of that next step for me because I, I just missed out on the MVP. You know, we didn't make the playoffs, but I, you know, I, my scoring, my rebounding is higher than it ever been, um, and uh, um, yeah, I thought that was uh, where I got that call. It was this, the next step, and it was a yeah, pretty pretty darn good season. Ninety eight most improved player. Uh, all NBL first team and third in total MVP voting. So not too shabby. Yeah, for, for a skinny kid from Newcastle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been fantastic as a hometown uh, kid, you know, leading the hometown team and, uh, and doing well. Um, how, long, how long after that did the Falcons actually run into some trouble and end up not being the Falcons? Yeah, I think it was 98, uh, 99 or um, mm, um, yep. the last year. Yeah, that was that was really, really horrifying. I mean, w- dreaming all my whole life to be a Falcon, and then having gotten so close and 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 uh, building on something that to be taken away. Um, what happened, from my understanding of things, was that uh, a new owners were um, needed for the Falcons, and uh, there was two bids: one from the West Leagues Group, uh, led by Phil Gardner, um, and there was another group. Um, from uh, these two businessmen that not many people knew much about. But for whatever reason, the league chose the unknown businessman over a, a group such as the, you know, the West Group, uh, which would be, you know, a fantastic organisation to be lined up with, both local and resource-wise. Well, it took the Newcastle Knights about 30 years to realise the same thing before they finally made that call. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's one, one or two dollars rolling around that spot. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and and, and um, they were very big um, supporters of the Falcons leading up to it anyway. Phil was a very big um, fan and supporter of the Falcons in basketball in Newcastle. Uh, I, I played for West as a junior. Um, so um, for them to sort of go the other direction, them as in the NBL, um, I, I couldn't understand it, and it sort of really set back Phil as well as far as doing any sort of thing with involving sport for a long time because he was really sort of felt hurt and, and betrayed by that decision to do that. I mean, I, I think he went to the board, he went to the members, and they went through a whole heap of sort of approaches to make sure it was what was going to be right for everybody, and then to be told no, yeah, it, um, it was very, very upsetting, especially when they turned out to be crooks, the ones they went with. Um, yeah, probably terrible. set the... Um, Probably set basketball here in Newcastle, professional basketball at least, back, well, a long time. It also had ramifications for the NBL because it's fair to say that, you know, I mean, Ben, you moved on to the Sydney Kings after that. Uh, but after your time with the Kings finished, that's, that's probably when the league sort of went through a, uh, a quite a, a bit of a depression, um, for lack of a better word, where, 
you know, the NBL went through a lot of trouble and wasn't on TV and for, for quite a time. It's rebounded back quite a lot. <coughs> but um, moving from the Falcons, obviously there wasn't, you probably, was there options to go elsewhere or just being close to home was a natural fit for you to join the Kings? Uh, again, um, yeah, lots of options, but um, chose the Kings because uh, Brett Brown. Um, you know, I hadn't played for him, but um, after having meeting him and, and knowing him, I had a lot of respect for him. Um, yeah. And uh, also him being the uh, Aussie coach um, yeah. didn't hurt either. Um, yeah, the but, same Brett Brown who's currently the Philadelphia 76ers head coach. That's right. That's right. Small world. Um, yeah. But um, it was... There was a bit of a stigma with Sydney at the time too. I remember my brother Simon saying, look, you're going to go to Sydney. You're going to be like everybody else. You're going to, not going to win. You're going to be another Violet Crumble and, you know, all those other names that were floating around the Kings. They had all this promise, the biggest budget. They were like, you know, um, the Lakers, so to speak, of the NBA, but um, just never won, never had anyone of any note other than, you know, like the Shane Hills, the, you know, um, um, Oh gosh, um, a whole list of names that play with the Kings, but um, mm. yeah, there was that stigma of you go to the Kings, you don't win. Yeah, and I, and I told you know, my brother, no, I'm going to change that, and um, you know, probably naively, but you know, you're only one person. But um, and it took me um, four years to, to win a championship, um, but it was you know their first championship and my first championship, and um, yeah, that's another memory you don't forget easily. Is that the series that's- against the Razorbacks? No, that was the Wildcats, wasn't it? And you beat the Wildcats in that championship series? Yeah, that was the Wildcats. Um, yeah, fuck you, Perth. Won it, over in, won it over there as well. Yeah. What's it was like was... having um, Shane Hill as a teammate? I mean, he he had a, a very successful career domestically. He had a bit of a tilt in the NBA. He had a quite a successful stint in Greece after his time with the Timberwolves. Mm. Um, coming back for sort of, you know, prime Shane Hill, what was he like sort of, you know, as a competitor on the court, as a teammate? Uh, we obviously, you know, he, he's a bit of a fiery little, little character, like a little terrier. Um, <laughs> was he, was he quite, was, you know, behind the scenes and not just on the court, uh, did he sort of, was he the driving force of that squad? Yeah, he, he was, but we had a lot of big personalities on that team. Um, but, but, but Shane being the captain, um, sort of it all hinged on him to, uh, um, yeah, to some extent or another to, to make sure everything was, uh, was was gluing and, and 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 working. I mean, it was I always found Shane so interesting. He would come in to the season, um, you, know, you wouldn't really see much of him, but he would sort of shop here and there. And then by the time the season started, you know, he, he might be looking a little bit out of shape. Not he wasn't, you know, by any means overweight, but I'm just saying that he didn't look trim and uh, and how you normally expect him to look. But by the time the season started, and we didn't see much of him in the gym or that kind of thing. He'd be on the bike and he'd be doing his thing, but. Wouldn't see him working that hard as far as on his on his physical body, um, but by the time the season started, he was trim and ready to go. I mean, he must have been mm-hmm. doing some stuff, um, you know, privately or behind the scenes. But he was, you know, ripped and um, and and really looking, um, you know, like he could uh, do the things that he could do physically on the court. Um, I mean, you'd always see him on the, in the gym shooting and and that kind of thing and getting everyone else involved, but. Um, uh, but yeah, a really top bloke off the court, but just a fierce competitor. Yeah, Sydney had uh, some great imports come in um, during their time there. Um, Chris Williams, I believe, was in that championship squad, um, and from what I understand, he's passed away recently. Is that correct, Macca? Yeah, that is yeah. correct. Yeah, um, I mean, I remember watching. He was almost like a silent assassin playing. He's just sort of, you know, just one of those guys that could rack up thirty points, ten boards, and you're like, oh wow, that didn't really notice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he was the 
he leads the University of Virginia in five categories. Um, yeah. That's something you can look up there, Pfeiffer. Um, uh, but um, but he came in with that sort of pedigree, um, playing the ACC, being you know the the top contributor uh, to the, those stats, and um, and he was like that. You know, remember Bradley Cherry, <coughs> another player with the Kings, um, played for the um, for Gorgon in, in Melbourne when he was yeah. younger, then came to the Kings with Gorgon. Um, he was like that. He was a real quiet assassin, as you put. Um, um, let, didn't do a lot of talking, or hardly spoke at all, to be honest. Um, but let his game do the talking, and um, before you knew it, yeah, thirty and ten, and you know, eight assists. Wow, Ben, what was it like in those days when when the Kings, you know, you were playing out at Homebush, the Olympics had had happened, and you know, what was the atmosphere in the NBL like? It was pretty big back then. I remember coming down and watching you a number of times, and there were big crowds. It was a it was a big life to live, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there was there was a lot of uh, expectation with the Kings being in a new stadium, uh, like the, what they call the Superdome. Um, yeah. And, um, you yeah, know, with Brett Brown, and we had, you know, a lot of big names on the team. Um, but, like, like things like what happens with, with sporting teams, I mean, you've got, you get injuries, you get uh, people that don't work out and uh, you have to replace them. Uh, I mean, ACL was uh, one of the big... You know, names in the NBA all the time. He came from the Celtics, and um, he had yeah. a great year the year before. And then I'd come in with AC, and we were going to be here's the five. I was the four, um, and then they realised pretty quickly that he wasn't doing anything compared to what Matty Nelson and I were doing on the court. And mm. then he was being a bit of a jackass off the court as well. So, um, mm. you know, when if you, when you're trying to make things difficult for the coach's dad, who is over from America just wanting to help out because he loves the game. And here's this American giving him lip back when, when we're all just trying to work hard and, and get better as a team. You're not going to last long on the court, um, especially no. if you're not producing on the court. So when yeah. that when he was sent home and then, we, <coughs> um, you know, we, we um, you know, tried to play pick up after that. And then I, you know, sort of hurt my foot with stress fracture, you know, shortly after that, we went from having two bigs that were supposed to be, you know, leading the front court to one sent home and one is out for the most of the year. Yeah, wow. So there was obviously obviously the highs and uh, and some of the lows. If we just take a, a step back for a couple of years, post um, under twenty three's World Championships, um, and then the lead into the Sydney Olympics. Uh, you know, Australia is entering their golden era uh, for basketball. Expectations, you know, for home Olympics. You're in that squad. Um, can you just talk us through that sort of that that period uh, leading into the preparation on the international level? Um, and then obviously um, the, the sort of uh, experience with the boomers just before um, the Olympics, because that's a qu- quite an uh, interesting story. Yeah, so I, I got the call up from Barry Barnes in uh, 98 uh, to, to play in the World Championships in Greece and the Goodwill Games in New York. And that was my first time with the, with the men's senior team. And that was with all the golden oldies, you know, your Heels, your, Hammer, uh, your um, Andrew Gazers, your Blair Brekkies, your Vlahoffs. Um, uh, the only young guys on that team were was myself and Frank Drimmick. Yeah, um, we were the only two young guys on that team of of golden oldies, of those legends um, that we all grew up watching, um, and um, <laughs> that the, yeah, that was you know, incredible. I mean, to have your name on the back of an Australian you know green and gold singlet, um, yeah, it's it's again one of those swagger moments that you never lose. Um, but um, yeah, leading I, I, I 
played played minimally in 98 with the world champions didn't get a lot of minutes there it was my first sort of time um but um then went on to 99 where i played with um uh, uh what's his name luke longley uh played a little bit with luke longley in 99 um we had uh, a series against canada um in 99 and um and longley was part of that and he was the five i was the four and that was probably the most fun i ever had playing on the australian team playing with longley because he's such a good passing big man yeah. um, and when when i was in when i was playing the power forward position it was really good because when i was when i later moved to the center i was playing the big slower heavier guys and that wasn't who i was i was more of a, a quicker more mobile big um and when i was playing with um you know, luke longley he would take the big guy i would take the, the quicker big uh, so that we would work off each other and it would help us with rebounds and help us with scoring and working off each other like that and having a smart experienced big man like luke longley to play with it was a dream come true for any young fella um, yeah we played so well together and um and we just tore through canada um when we both started for the australian team he was five i was four um and everything was all great i was going towards 90 uh this is 99 heading towards 2000 i was 24 turning 25 i was in the peak of my career everything was going had um uh, you know come to the to the sydney kings and you know signed a nice big contract and um you know, everything was culminating to this point where i was at the peak and then i had a stress fracture diagnosed in my foot i remember playing up in cairns and having this pain in my foot and coaches looking at me like you know can you play and i'm like well, i can kind of limp around coach but i i just can't put pressure on my foot i had no idea what it was and then i found out it, in scans it was a stress fracture so that just you know you know tore my whole world i mean um and i thought okay can i recover in time and there was a chance that i could um sorry guys my little one just hurt herself <laughs> um, hopefully she hasn't stress fractured her foot <laughs> no, yeah she's feeling dad's pain yeah so uh, yes yeah, so i was doing everything i could um to to, to get back and, and i got myself somehow back for the last um coaching camp that was down in canberra the is where there was going to be sort of three sessions on the Saturday, two on the Sunday. Um, and then they would pick the team at the end of that second session on the Sunday. And again, doing incredibly well, you know, bounced back, rod back in the wood, you know, very competitive with everybody. And um, seeing that as though I was already on the team two years prior, you know, it's, there's a saying with the Australian team, it's easy to get, to, it's easy to, uh, uh, to stay in the team and harder to actually make it. Because once you're on the team, you know, then you're sort of established, but getting your foot in the door is the hard part. Um, so I was sort of assumed to be, you know, uh, one of the, the bigs, if not one of the starting bigs uh, at the 2000 Olympics. And um, yeah, and then I got a stress fracture in my other foot on the very last day uh, of that last training camp. Um, and unfortunately, they had to pick the team that weekend um, because I still recovered from that second stress fracture to play in the amateurs with the uh, Newcastle Hunters um and we won a championship with the hunters um wow, the so you were olympics. you were healthy throughout the time the olympics was happening but because you'd missed that selection window that window you had that injury and that's and, and that's a an old fever requirement of when you have to actually name the team and you know i don't even think that exists today to be honest so that's a, yeah yeah that made you a major career achievement that's pretty really. brutal I, I mean i can't imagine you know, being an Olympian representing a country at Olympic Games for many is the pinnacle of their sport. Um, what were some of the emotions and stuff that you sort of had had to battle when you're watching the boys play, you know, at, at Sydney and, you know? 
Uh, well, there was an extra t- twist of wickedness to what happened to me um, the year before, back in 99, when I was playing with Longley and it was all sort of you know, roses and, and, and dreams. Um, I, I'd actually been chosen to play in the NBA at the Summer League with the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Mark Bradkey and I went over to play with the San Antonio Spurs uh, at the, um, uh, the Rocky Mountain Review, it's called. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, I just playing tip top my first game against the jazz played had 16 points um and um the san antonio uh, assistant coach who was the head coach well, for the rocky mountain review said to me that gosh i thought that sydney is just a chump from australia but you're actually really good um you know let, let, what we want you to do is uh let's um let's see how you go to the olympics next year and then we'll talk and yeah, i was well. like okay great you know Mm. And I was like, oh, here we go, Olympics next. And then I got the, the two stress fractures and didn't make the team and then didn't get seen by the NBA. And um, and that really, yeah, that was really hard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow. I can't imagine. Just um, quickly touching on Longley, you mentioned he was a great teammate and great passing big man. Watching this, um, the last dance, um, Longley's sort of, um, for some reason, quite absent um, from he, the first couple of episodes. He's not in at all due to funding. Yeah, I find that hard to believe. There's plenty of money going around for those sort of things. Um, but, it would, yeah, um, he was obviously an integral part of that team and, and to, to see um, Longley not there or, you know, have very little reference to that uh, was, I guess, a little bit disappointing from an Australian perspective. Um, but just in, in terms of Longley's influence on that, on that Boomers squad after his experience with those three championships with the Bulls, did he sort of shed any light as to his experiences with that championship run um, or, you know, did he sort of keep that relatively quiet, um, not, well, not not wanting to boast about sort of his, his achievements too much? Yeah, in typical sort of Aussie fashion, you know, he, he's a little, he's a, he, um, we didn't bother him that kind of stuff. Um, you know, he was just one of the boys, um, especially to the guys like um, Shane and, and Andrew Gaze. Um, they would look at him like they were, you know, just one of the boys. But to us, he was like this legend. So, of course, we didn't go, oh, excuse me, Mr. Longley, sir. Uh, <laughs> you know, we didn't have those conversations with him. And we were, you know, big time in our own right too, to a, to a degree. But he was another level being the Chicago Bulls guy. Um, so, I mean, there was enough media attention and those sorts of questions being asked of him by the fans and by the press. So we just sort of focused on, you know, getting to know him as a guy. Mm. Yeah, wow. Interesting. And you um you spoke um earlier about the probably the most influential uh coach that you had throughout your career. What about teammate? Like, is there anybody that stands out for you amongst all of your high school, pro, and college career that you just kind of went, yeah, geez, man, that guy. Like, you know, I don't know whether it was someone like Longley or Matt Nielsen. You know, came to mind. He played a bit of ball with him. Who? Anybody else? Gosh, mate, that's a really good question. I've never had that asked to me before. Um... I, I, could, I can't put it to one player that really sticks out. The only people that stick out as far as inspirations and what led me to where I got to would have to be my brothers, um, mm. those guys. They were my first teammates. Um, yeah. You know, because it was always – I mean, like we – I probably I don't think I've shared this outside of my family, but um, my, um, my younger brother Adam and I, we created this game when we were kids. We would – 
build it up where we'd, we'd first start playing each other. We'd be playing with these mock teammates, of course, but it was just one-on-one, but we would pass to, a, to each other like we were each other's teammates. And it was me versus him, but he'd have his own imaginary teammates and I would have my own. Yeah, that's cool. I bet that's a real good memory that they share as well, mate. And, and I know that they've mentioned a few different stories like that to me. What about over the course of your, of, of your whole career, those those moments, is there something that you look back on more fondly or is it just the whole experience of being a part of so many great teams and so many great organisations? Yeah, I mean, that's that's it pretty much, is that uh, I I don't miss... The thing I miss the most about is, yeah, is the relationships and, and the guys and, and um, uh, being in the locker room after a game where you've left everything on the floor and you've come out victorious and you're just looking at each other like, oh we did it i can't believe we mm. did it like we just beat the kings and we never beat the kings at home or mm. or, or um we won that game in overtime and oh what a great play you just made or benny what a great shot that was or you know those sorts of comments to each other and then you look at each other after the game and and uh, all that sort of background noise stuff going on like you're having a drink or something like that and all that background noise starts to, to creep in and tries to steal that moment away but when especially like guys you won the championship with yeah, looking at each other across the room after you just won a championship. Um, yeah, those sorts of things. Um, and those those human moments. Excellent, yeah. uh, Ben. Couple of questions before we wrap it up. Um, one of my favourite uh, off-court stories r- related to your time with the Kings was the, um, the Star Wars uh, opportunity. Um, and you mentioned before about um, training with the Boomers and making yourself unavailable. But then an opportunity came along to be a Wookie. Um, and a couple of your teammates got to fulfil that role. Just quickly run us through that story. So it was it was after the Sydney Kings. Uh, we just won the championship, and um, um, yeah, there was a, a, the the great quiet <laughs> after all that noise. Uh, and I get a call up, and it's sort of someone saying, "Hi, I'm so and so. I'm from Lucasfilm. Um, we'd like to talk to you about coming into the studios uh, in it, you know, wherever the studios are for 20th Century Fox in, in Sydney. There to sort of to go through a few things for the new Star Wars film. And I was like, sorry, who are you? And, <laughs> who, who is this? Who is this? Is this one of my brothers? <laughs> no, seriously. Hello, I, hello. <laughs> Prank call. I thought it would have been, been Pfeiffer. Uh, <laughs> it's the sort of thing he would normally do, but he doesn't do female voices too well, God bless him. Um, but um, but it was pretty quickly it dawned on me, hang on, this is not a joke. This is for real. And then I was like, okay, hang on, what are the dates? And then they said, you know, this, this date. And, and I said, look, unfortunately, I've got, you know, Boomer's um, train. I've got a training session that week and I'm not available. I'm so sorry. I would love to be a part of it. I'm a big Star Wars fan or this and that. But, yeah, can't do it. It's the, the Boomer's uh, training that weekend. And, and as it turned out, uh, after I sort of said no and they went with some other people, they chose, um, I think, David Stiff and Michael Kingler, uh, got mm-hmm. some roles. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, very happy for them. But um, it turned out that the, the date for the train camp was moved and I would have been available and I could have been a Wookiee uh, in the Star Wars series. So, yeah, I mean, like, I can spend, I can beat myself up about that kind of thing. But at the same time, Star Wars is one of my favourite shows and, and something mm. that is very special and personal. And if I was part of the production process and the makeup and the waiting around and the, you know, and that sort of space. They've taken the gloss off some of it by watching it. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you do a good Wookiee noise? Is that is that something that you you, had, you would have had to practice? If, if you no, give a few scotches, you watch the Wookiee inner Wookiee comes right out, mate. <laughs> yeah, All right. Yeah. Um, now, one of those Wookiee teammates actually came up. Um, we, we're going to wrap wrap it up in a couple of minutes. 
But uh, you actually returned and played with the Hunter Pirates for a, a season or two uh, back in the mid-2000s. Um, and unfortunately for Basketball in Newcastle, the second iteration of our professional team, um, it, was, you know, it, was good, it was good while it lasted, but um, that was when a, a time when the league sort of struggled across the board. Yeah, um, it, was, it was kind of like getting back together with your ex-girlfriend. It was yeah. like, yeah, it was nice, but you know why it was gone in the first place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's sort of how it felt. Um, and um, yeah, all, all the best intentions to, to make it something, but um, unfortunately, the reason it died still remained. Um, yeah. Newcastle doesn't have a lot of sort of resources to support what sporting professional sporting teams need in this you know, in this generation. Yeah. And probably the one resource that could have may have been gun shy the second time around. <coughs> that's true. Yeah, mm. and uh, now for all, for those that are in the know, West's Leagues Club are now uh, bankroll the Newcastle Knights. Uh, so, ben, do you think you'll uh, will you ever will you ever get back involved with basketball, mate, or is it a part of your yeah. life that you're pretty happy now? You're pretty heavily invested in what you do for a living with an age and disability care, mate, aren't you? Yeah, that's that's my new passion, Maka. Um, mm. You know, there are a lot of vulnerable people um, sort of in the world that. Um, well, I was fortunate as myself and, um, you know, don't have voices um, that a six foot ten person with my experience you know, has. Um, mm. and, and coming from somewhere where I was picked on and bullied and, and not included, um, you know, uh, I can certainly empathise with those, you know, who have that experience as a result of their disability um, rather than just being tall, which is seen as very much an ability rather than a disability. Um, but um, so yeah, that that that's my focus at the moment, and very much um, you know what drives me. But as far as basketball and my future, it's interesting because I'm sitting on this elite level of knowledge that I mm-hmm. want to pass on to to other people. Um, I'm not yeah. against it. Um, I just don't have the drive or the motivation or the time at the moment. Being a, having two young girls, I'm now raising. Um, so I mean, who knows when they get. To, to be older and they show a bit of interest in the sport. Um, I would like to participate, maybe not as a coach. Um, I think it'd be uh, my role as dad would become gray if it, I was a mixed dad and coach. Um, mm. I want to keep those lines nice and clear for the kids. I can um, tell you from firsthand experience, coaching your kids at a junior level of sport is indeed very difficult and does present its challenges. Yeah, you should well, keep it does it. if you're a psycho like you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like probably someone as measured as Ben probably be maybe slightly better. Well, I, but, I think in our case, yeah. it's it's kind of like father like son. Um, so yeah. it's like two two bulls butting horns together. Yeah. And I think that's a an interesting point that you raised, mate. Uh, I'm I think for you, what I would say is, it seems to me like the passion that you're approaching your new profession with. You may be passing on a lot of the lessons that you learned. They may not specifically be basketball related, but I think people are getting the value of that knowledge, mate. And we appreciate the fact that you would come on and spend two hours of your Saturday with us here, mate. And, uh, you know, good luck with that because I think it's an, a very noble and as noble profession as sport, you know. So, Absolutely. Um, so well done. Yeah. yeah um, a couple of quick questions to round it out. Uh, who is the best player you've played against? The best player I've played against. I would say Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. Best player you've played with? The GOAT, Tim Duncan. <laughs> um, gosh, I would say uh, Andrew Gaze. Yep, good answer. Sure. And uh, if you had to pick your all-time NBL starting five from point guard through to centre, who do you have? 
We're putting you on your spot, so we did, we're, not, we're not giving you time to think about it too much. No, no, you're not. Um, look, I would say Andre Miller at point. Uh, I was thinking, oh, NBL, are we not all-time? Or NBL. Oh, NBL. Well, we'll go all-time and then NBL. Go, go all-time. All-time uh, that I've played with, not yeah. um, what okay. I think. Uh, Andre Miller at point. I'd put... Uh, gosh. We have played a few games together. I do, I do run a pretty mean two-man if you want to check me out. <laughs> <laughs> two-man, gosh. Um, God, um, uh, Andrew Gase? There'd be, yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is there've been a lot of sort of hybrid positions um, where people have played um, uh, both both roles. But um, look, I'm going to put. Um, Let's go back court, front court. That's the easiest way to do it now. Yeah, well, so you okay. don't have to go one, two, three. Just front front court. I'd put Shane Hill uh, with uh, Andrew Ga- with um, um, with uh, Andre Miller. I'd put Andrew Gaze at the three. Um, I'd put myself at the four. I'd yeah. put um, and Tim uh, Tim Duncan at five um, as far oh. as my all time yeah. guys you've played with. Uh, played with. Um, yeah, what about your all time um, all time um, NBL starting five? All time starting five for the NBL. Okay, probably Phil Smythe at the, the guard. Smythe. Um, and the Canberra Cannons. Yes, love the Cannons. <laughs> uh, Shane Hill at the two. Yeah. Um, I'd put uh, Australian or just in, played in the NBL. NBL. So you can you can do imports. It's a very yeah. tough list. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. I mean, yeah. Hammer or Gaze. That's that sort of two spot. Because um, at three spot, I want to put Chris Williams or um, uh, or, or Gaze at the three. Uh, I want to put. Um, oh gosh, probably. Um, Matt Nielsen at four. I think yep. he was quite good. Um, uh, I know I'm butchering a lot of people who were probably just as good from older generations, but um, you know what's more fresh in my mind would be you know, Matty Nielsen. And at the five, um, gosh, a really good five. Um, uh, in the NBL. Yeah, probably Mark Bradkey. Yep. Um, yeah, Bradkey. Um, yeah. was, yeah, he was, he, yeah, very strong, very good fundamentals, really good down low. He's definitely a guy that uh, that gets overlooked a lot in these sort of conversations. Uh, the best ben, part about that, you didn't pick your brother, Adam, and he'll be skewing you about that. So, fuck <laughs> <laughs> shit, Melly. <laughs> he's on the so bench. He's, he's on the bench. He's right in the pine. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, he, but that's he, good. Uh, that's going to keep the fire going for the family reunions, I reckon. He'll put you into a garage door soon. <laughs> ben, he we does, really appreciate your time. Um, there's, there's probably another two or three hours worth of conversation that we could all have, but we might have to uh, save that for another time around a fire and a couple of beers. Um, but from the bottom of our hearts, sincerely thank you for your time today. And uh, I'm sure we'll organise a nice six-pack of scotch and cola delivered to your door um, <laughs> as a thank you um, or your preferred beverage. Um, but yeah, but uh, th- th- thanks for your time. Thanks for talking. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you around. Now, now that I know you're back, thanks, I, I thought you are still in Canberra. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Like, yeah, no, I, I do to keep it pretty quiet and, and private uh, in my post-basketball life. I think uh, having a... Um, been spending so much time in, in the spotlight as an introverted person. Um, now that I get the choice to, to not be in it, um, yeah, it's my pleasure to, to talk with you guys about it. Well, your wealth of knowledge and stories is greatly appreciated. And I'm sure all the people that listen to our show will enjoy this one. Uh, pleasure, guys. All the best. Thank you, Ben. 
See you, mate.